Tonight we are diving back into the book of Haggai. Uh, we're going to complete, Lord willing, the book of Haggai tonight. Uh, we began it a few weeks ago on the Sunday of Missions Week. And we are going to, Lord willing, complete it tonight. And hopefully by the time we get done, you will feel be feeling better uh, than my family uh, is feeling right now. I think it's not going to be a good thing uh, for Julia in just a moment. But uh, hopefully I can kind of get that out of my mind and we will, we will look uh, at Haggai chapter 2. I want to just remind you of the background of where we've been in the book of Haggai, what this book is about. Uh, it's been about three weeks since we looked at it together. And what's going on in the book of Haggai is this. For um, 50 years plus, the people of Israel have been in exile in Babylon because of their rejection of the Lord. And uh, they are suffering there. They know that that's why they are there. And in 536 B.C., after a long period of suffering, a long period of exile, God began to send back uh, a remnant of the people under the leadership of a man named Ezra. And as they went back to Jerusalem, they began to try to restore the temple. The first thing, one of the first things they did was they rebuilt the altar there. So they built the altar before they built the building itself. The altar was rebuilt. They began to reestablish the sacrifices on the altar. And then they began to try to build the temple around the altar. And they began the process. But somewhere between 536 and about a decade and a half later, they ran out of steam and they lost interest and they didn't finish the project of rebuilding the house of the Lord. You can hear an echo of the attitude that the people had in Haggai chapter 1 verse 2 where it says, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. They had lost steam and they were actually convincing themselves that it just wasn't the right time to serve the Lord in this way. So the work had stopped. Apparently it had stopped with them just building a mere foundation and not building any of the walls or any of the ornamentation and so on. So in 520 B.C., after 16 years of incomplete work on the temple, Haggai comes along, stirred up by the Lord to stir up the people of the Lord to work for the Lord. And you get a sense of his message in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And he goes on to say in verse 8, Go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. So Haggai has come along and he stirred them up out of their uh, laziness to serve the Lord again. And in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1, you see that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king, they had begun the work. So that's what happened in chapter 1. It's a good thing. If the story ended there, it would be wonderful. But what you find as you go into chapter 2 is what you find a lot of times in spiritual work and church work, that people who begin well and are excited at the beginning, somewhere along the line, get discouraged. Things weren't going as fast as they thought, maybe. Things weren't going as well as they thought. The temple wasn't as beautiful or amazing as they had hoped. And so they were discouraged. And so... 
uh, Haggai comes along a second time and preaches a second sermon to them. And the main content of that sermon is this, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. So two times now, Haggai has come to the people and said, don't give up serving the Lord. Work, rebuild the temple, rebuild the Lord's house. And when we come to chapter 2, verse 10, we find that it has been exactly three months from the day that they began the work. You remember uh, in chapter 1 that it was the 24th day of the 6th month, verse 15, that they began the work. And chapter 2, verse 10, now it's the 24th day of the ninth month. Three months had gone by. And apparently what's happening here, as we'll see as we read it in just a moment, is that they're having a bit of a what we would think of maybe as a groundbreaking ceremony. They weren't actually breaking ground, but this was a ceremony where things were going to really start to move forward. Chapter 2, verse 15, uh, which we'll read in a moment, you can look there and you can see that as of yet, they haven't begun to lay the stones in place. So they'd begun working in chapter 1, they continue working in chapter 2, but they hadn't actually started laying the stones. What were they doing? We don't know. Probably um, getting the foundation ready um, after 16 years, it had probably suffered some disrepair. Maybe they were gathering materials, maybe they were cutting the stones, but it took them three months of work before they were ready to start putting the stones in place. And apparently on the 24th day of the ninth month, they had a grand ceremony where the priests were there, the people were there, the leaders were all there, and they were about to begin in earnest building up the walls of the temple. And here again, Haggai comes and this time preaches a third sermon to the people. And that's what we have in verses 10 through 19. So let's read those together and hear what this third sermon of the prophet Haggai has to say to the people of Israel and apply it and see what it has to say to us. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priests answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these things, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, There would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded. Consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. So a third sermon from Haggai to these people. And the question is, what is the main point or what is the gist of this third sermon? Well, it's the same as the first two. In this third sermon, Haggai is once again motivating the people not to give up, but to get to work, to serve the Lord, to rebuild the temple. 
And as we've gone along throughout the book of Haggai, we've noted to ourselves that we don't have a temple to build. We are building God's kingdom in the world by the spread of the gospel and by the upbuilding of the church. So uh, when we applied this to ourselves, we said in the first two sermons that Haggai preached, what Haggai is saying to us is serve the Lord and build up his church, build up his kingdom in the world. And that's what he's saying again to them and to us tonight. And the way he does that is he he has two main uh, headings in his sermon. He's trying to convince them to serve the Lord, to build the temple. And he does so first by giving them a reminder in verses 10 through 14. The reminder is simply this, that one doesn't become holy by being around holy things. One doesn't become holy by osmosis. Some of you, uh, maybe when you were in school, heard the joke uh, where the teacher I uh, would say maybe in a bit of a smart out way to the student that it's not good enough for you just to put the, the book under your bed at night and think that the material is going to soak into your head. You have to actually work and study at it. Well, it's the same thing with holiness. You can't become holy just by being around holy things. That's what he's going to say to us in verses 10 through 14. So there's a reminder and then there's a reward. Verses 15, the main point is this. Those who honor God, God will honor them. If you serve the Lord the Lord will work for you. If you serve the Lord, the Lord will be with you and He will bless you. Now, that's not in a sense of working for your salvation, but as a believer who understands that all of your work that you do for the Lord is actually given, you're given the strength by the Lord, when you say yes to the Lord and serve Him, God blesses you. So He tries to motivate them first by saying, listen, don't just think because you're living in Israel that everything's okay, you need to serve the Lord. And he tries to motivate them secondly by saying, if you serve the Lord, the Lord will bless you. And I just want us to try to unpack those two parts of this third sermon of Haggai together briefly. Number one, again, you do not become holy simply by being around holy things or holy people. This is what he's all about in verses 12 through 13. Verses 12 and 13 are an object lesson from Hebrew law. Let me read them to you again. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches bread with this fold or cooked wine, cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. Here's, here's the question. If you've got something that's holy, something that's set apart for the Lord, and it touches something else that's just a normal item, does that mean that that normal item becomes holy just by touching the holy meat? No. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, excuse me, verse 13, If you have something unclean, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. In Jewish law, if you touched a dead person, you were unclean for a certain amount of time. And if you touched other things or other people, they became unclean. So the point Haggai is making and the priest with him is it's easier to become unclean than it is to become clean. If you're clean and you touch something unholy, then it defiles you along with itself. But if you're unholy, you can't become holy just by being around the priests and their garments or around the altar, or around the temple. To put it in kind of a modern context, the way we kind of kind of the main thing we think of when we think of Jewish law today is the kosher laws. Right. That's kind of what is we're in most contact with. And we all know that Jewish people don't eat pork. So if you talk to a Jewish person um, and you said, you, you all don't eat pork, right? And they would say, that's exactly right. And you could say to them, well, if you took that pork that's unclean and you sprinkled it with holy water 
and you wrapped it in holy priestly garments and you prayed holy prayers over it. And even if you could go back to ancient Jerusalem and put it on the holy altar, would that make that pork clean? And the answer would come back every time. Absolutely not. In fact, what would happen is that unclean pork would defile all the other clean things that it's touching. It's easier to become defiled than it is to become holy. You could just think of that in in terms of, of something that we all know about, especially at this time of year, germs. If you are sick and you breathe on someone who's well, they're likely to become sick, right? But it doesn't work the other way around. If you're sick and I'm well and I breathe on you, that's not going to do you any good, is it? It's easier to become sick than it is to become healthy. It's easier to become unholy than it is to become holy. And that's especially true when you apply it to human spirituality. That's what this object lesson is all about. What Haggai was saying to this people is, just because you're around the temple and you're offering the sacrifices and you're back in the Holy Land doesn't make you holy. Apparently some of the people began to think to themselves, we're we're in Jerusalem, we've rebuilt the altar, the priests are offering sacrifices, so everything must be okay. We don't have to serve God. It's not that big a deal. We're holy. We're God's people. We're the chosen people. And so they just were satisfied with being around religion rather than serving God with their own hearts and with their own souls. But when you looked at their actions, it was obvious that they really weren't holy, that they really weren't dedicated to the Lord. In verse 14, the first part of the verse, after speaking about these unclean items, then Haggai said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. They weren't holy and their actions showed that they weren't holy. They delayed 16 years in rebuilding God's house. And what Haggai says at the end of verse 14 is, it doesn't matter what you put on that altar. It doesn't matter how much you do, how many sacrifices you put there. If your heart is not serving the Lord, then you're not one of His. You're not set apart to Him. It's not good enough just to be around religion. There's a lesson there for all of us isn't there i hope the lesson's already obvious i hope you already have thought about it and i wouldn't even need to say anything but i'm going to go ahead and take you where we need to go with this lesson to these uh, jews living in 520 bc and the lesson is the same for us isn't it we can be around all the stuff that's going on in the church that may be wonderful stuff and that doesn't mean that we ourselves are set apart to god it doesn't mean that we ourselves are holy You can attend church every Sunday morning for prayer meetings, Sunday school, Sunday worship, and Wednesday nights you can be here too, and you can be in the the worship team, and you can be serving on all sorts of things, but that doesn't mean that your heart is really set towards God, does it? You can put your money in the offering plate, you can know how to pray all the right prayers, you can know all the right answers, but that doesn't make you holy. Being around what's holy doesn't make you holy yourself necessarily. Holiness is an inward change, and that inward change leads to an outward action of serving the Lord with all of your heart. For the Israelites, that meant that they stopped building their own paneled houses and started building the house of the Lord. For us, it means that we won't just be casual Christians who are here and who listen and who say amen at the right places and who sing all the songs. It means that we will actually leave here and be out 24 hours a day, seven days a week serving the Lord wherever it is that we are. So whether it's at work or whether it's serving through the church or whether it's in school or whether it's in our neighborhood or whether it's in our homes, we're serving the Lord. We're serving the Lord by praying that his kingdom would come. 
Remember, we've said all along that we don't have a temple to build. We're building the kingdom of God. One of the ways that we do that is by holy, dedicated, committed prayer. Praying, praying, praying for the lost, praying for the the church, praying for the kingdom of God in the world. Witnessing as well. It's not enough just to come to the church and say, Amen, I believe the gospel if we're never willing to say anything about it to anyone else. It means serving wholeheartedly in your servant ministry role, whatever that is for you in 2007. You're not just going to come in and say, well, I've got this job and I'll kind of try to do the bare minimum or I'll do it when they really push me to do it or I'll do it because I have to do it. But that you take whatever it is that God has assigned you in this body and that you dive in whole hog and do it with all that you have. It means that you give not just because you have to or not just the bare minimum, but that you give with all of your heart. You give cheerfully. You give sacrificially. And as we go into 2007 and it's a fresh start in lots of different ways for servant ministry roles and other things, it's a chance for you just in your mind to get a fresh start, uh, to make better attempts this year at serving the Lord. This is a great time for you to think, am I really holy or am I just around holy things? That's what Haggai is asking these people. Are you really holy or are you just around those who are? And if you're simply around those who are holy, that doesn't mean that you yourself are holy with them. So let's remember, first of all, that we are not holy simply by being around holy things. Personal holiness leads to personal action in serving the Lord with all of our heart. And so hearing that, the people should have worked. But Haggai has another thing to say to them. He wants to remind them, okay, if you do start to serve the Lord, the Lord will bless you. And that's the second point of his sermon, the second point of this sermon. Those who honor God, God will honor. Verses 15 through 19. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time, when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit, yet from this day on I will bless you. As we said before, it appears that there's some sort of ceremony happening here. They're about to found the temple. They're about to begin to lay one stone on top of the other. The priests are there. The people are all there. Everyone is gathered. And what God does as they are gathered for this momentous occasion in the building of this building is he says, this is going to be a momentous occasion in your life. Your spiritual walk with me. This is going to be a spiritual boundary marker in your lives. The 24th day of the ninth month. From this day onward, I'm going to treat you differently. And as he makes a boundary marker, he first points out to them what was back on the backside. What had previously occurred before this day. And then he goes on in verses 18 and 19 and says, now let me tell you what's going to occur after this day. First, he reminds them what occurred before. He reminds them of the results of their past unfaithfulness. And you can just walk through verses 16 and 17 and see what he says. Their grain returns, verse 16a, had been cut in half. The land that used to yield 20 measures of wheat now only yielded 10 measures of wheat. Their vineyards were no longer as fertile as they once were. The acreage that used to yield 50 vats of wine now only did 20. Verse 17 
God smote them with strong winds that apparently knocked over these trees uh, or at least damaged and stripped these trees that he mentions down in verse 19. The fig, the vine, the pomegranate, and the olive tree. You remember seeing pictures from the Mississippi Gulf Coast of these huge old oaks that were all around these antebellum homes. The homes are gone. The oaks, some of them are still there. No leaves, nothing left, completely ruined. That's what God had done to their, their orchards. Then he says that he smote them with mildew. You can imagine, okay, all the, all the trees have been stripped of their fruit. Well, we'll go into our silos where we have stuff stored up at least, and maybe we can survive until the next harvest season. Well, they went to their silos, and they found that all their stuff had molded in the silos. So they had nothing left in their storage either. And then on whatever was left, whatever grain and things like that were left, God sent hail, he says in verse 17, to beat down their crops. So they were in a world of hurt financially. God says, all those years that you refused to serve me within, with all your heart, you were in a world of hurt. You were struggling just to get by. But then in verses 18 and 19, he says, but now let me tell you what's going to happen in the future. Let me tell you what's going to happen starting this very day. As a result of your faithfulness, verse 19, the end of the verse, from this day on, I will bless you. And here's what he's trying to say in verse 19. Is the seed still in the barn? Answer, Yes. They had started to serve the Lord for three months now. They've been serving the Lord. They haven't had time to go out and cultivate their fields. So in human reasoning, you would think, well, we've been three months building this house. We haven't had time to go out and plant seeds. The seeds are still in the barn. So there's not going to be a very good crop this year either. But God says, listen, the seeds are still in the barn, yet I'm going to bless you anyway. And then he says in verse 19, the second part, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, they haven't borne fruit. It doesn't look like it's going to be a year for a great harvest again. But in spite of that, I'm going to bless you. They hadn't planted and the things that were already planted like trees that come back year after year weren't doing very well. Yet seemingly out of nowhere, against what the farmer's almanac would have said for that year, contrary to the norms of nature, God says, I will bless you. From this day onward, not because you've been shrewd in your planting skills, but because you have served me. And this is a timeless reminder of what we see all throughout the Bible, that our personal success, monetary, physical success is not a result of us laboring hard for ourselves. It just isn't your success physically, temporally with the things that you own and the things that you're earning is not based on your Uh, hard work, it's not based on your mind, it's not based on anything that you do, it's based on the grace of God. So you can build a nest egg, you can invest prudently, you can work overtime, you can build all the bigger barns that you want, but in the end, you can't take any of the credit for any of the material blessings that God gives you. They're blessings of His grace. And they are especially given to those of His children who serve Him faithfully. You say, well, you sound maybe like you're kind of bordering on the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. If you just serve God, then he'll give you everything you need. Yeah, that's what the Bible says, isn't it? What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, food, clothing, shelter, will be added unto you. It's as simple as that. That's not the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That's just the gospel. If we would seek God first, if we would be about God's interest, then God would take care of all the material needs that we 
have. He doesn't promise that we're going to be rich and drive a brand new red Mercedes, but he does promise that food, clothing, and shelter will be given to us. And he does promise here to these people that their crops would begin to produce in ways that were abnormal and weren't logical based on the previous planting and the previous results of the years that had gone by. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all that you need will be given to you. Do you believe that? Are you willing to put your money and your time and your energy where your mouth is if you say you believe that? Just think in 2007, am I willing to put more money uh, into the offering plate and less money into savings because I believe that if I serve God with all my heart, he'll meet my needs. Some of us just honestly don't believe God enough to do that. Are you willing in 2007 to spend less time on personal projects and more time on your servant ministry roles and your responsibilities in the church so that you can do them uh, faithfully and even beyond what most people would consider faithfully and trust that God will take care of your house and your yard and your garden and things like that if you're busy serving him? If we believe what Jesus said, if we will believe what God is saying in the book of Haggai, then we'll do those kinds of things. And if so we will find at the end of 2007, though it makes no worldly sense, though it makes no logical sense to us, that if we would serve God more and tend our farms less, metaphorically speaking, if we'd serve God and take care of our own stuff less, that at the end of 2007 our finances would actually be better. Our houses would actually be more beautiful. Our work would be more successful. Our body would be more energetic both for the things of God and for the things that we need to do for ourselves. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that if you serve God this year, that he's going to give you a brand new five bedroom house, you know, that he's going to give you this house next door to the church next year for free. So the way God that God makes your finances better or your home better or your work better may not look like what you imagine it to be, but the promise is the promise. If you seek first God's kingdom, he will take care of all those other things. Things And I urge you in 2007 to do that like you've never done it before. So Haggai says to these people, listen, don't just think because you're religious that you're right with God. Serve God, and that will show if you're really right with God. And he says, secondly, if you serve God, God will bless you. He will take care of all the other things that you need. And then we come to verses 20 through 23, which is Haggai's fourth and final sermon And it's not a sermon this time delivered to the whole group of people like the previous three had. 20 through 23 is a sermon specifically to one man, Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judah. He was the guy who was politically in charge when all this returning from exile and all this rebuilding and all these things were happening. The question is, why does Haggai have a special sermon delivered just to one individual? Well, I don't know all the answers, but I read two two commentators this week whom I think hit it right on the head as to the main reason why Zerubbabel got his own special sermon. Listen to James Montgomery Boyce. He was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and passed away just a few years ago. Here's what he said. Why did Zerubbabel get his own sermon? Because there are special burdens of leadership that not everyone has, and leaders therefore need encouragement even more than other people. And then listen to Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, who said this. Why did Zerubbabel have his own sermon? 
Zerubbabel has thoughts in his head far above those of the common people. The people of the land are in a care about their cornfields and vineyards. God has assured them that they shall prosper, and we hope that will make them easy. But Zerubbabel is concerned about the community and its interests, about the neighboring nations, about the revolutions of their governments, and what will become of the few and feeble Jews in those charges and convulsions, and how such a poor prince as he should be able to keep his ground and serve his country. Go to him, says God, and tell him all will be well with him and his remnant, and let that make him easy. So why a separate sermon to Zerubbabel, the leader of the people? Both of these men point out, and I think they're right, that the reason why Zerubbabel got his own sermon is because the burden of leadership is great. And a leader has a great deal more to worry about than the people that he is leading. They have their own affairs to worry about, and he has his own affairs to worry about, but on top of his own affairs, he has all of their lives and liveliness to worry about as well. This is true both in the political world and in the church. Leaders have a great burden that those who aren't in leadership do not have. And so Haggai, through the Lord, excuse me, through Haggai, has a special word to leaders in this passage. And so I just want to take a moment to address those uh, three of you who are here tonight who have just been elected as our leaders next year. Listen to what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. Verse 20, Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is what God is saying to Zerubbabel. In verses 21 and 22, he's saying, listen, Zerubbabel, you need to know that war is coming. There's going to be great tumult in the nations around you. People are going to be overthrown. Kingdoms are going to be overthrown. And you're the leader of this little bitty remnant people who's just come back to the land and hardly has anything together yet. And you're going to be scared to death because of all that's going on around you. There will be terror in people's hearts. There will be terror in your own heart. There will be organizational nightmares trying to prepare for what's coming. There will be financial strain trying to prepare for what's coming. There will be unbelievable pressure in your life. But, verse 23, I will be as near to you as a man is to his favorite ring. Most of you have rings on your fingers tonight. They're pretty close to your body, aren't they? It's your wedding ring or maybe another special ring. You never take it off of your body. It's always as close to you as your skin is. And what God is saying to Zerubbabel is, things are going to seem crazy, but you remember as close as that ring is to your finger, that's how close I will be to you at all times. You will be like my most favorite ring. So you don't worry about all the tumult, Zerubbabel. You just get to work. So for those of you who are leaders... Here's a reminder. As God was with Zerubbabel, so He is with you. You do not have to fear, though your task is great. And your task is great. It is a, is a, a weighty thing to lead God's church. And I hope that you feel the sense of that weight. Your responsibilities are important. 
Heaven and hell are in the balance in the leadership of the church. We leaders can either lead this church to false doctrine and to go off the deep end in anger and hatred towards one another, or we can lead the church to right doctrine and to love of one another. It's a huge responsibility, and we are not capable of handling it. But God is, and God will be as close to us as our rings are on our fingers. That's God's word to the leaders in this passage or from this passage. Your job is going to be hard. There will be controversy in these next years that will have to be dealt with. There will be heartaches that will have to be dealt with. There will be long hours sometimes that will have to be put in. There will be hard decisions for these men. But God says to us, I will be with you every step of the way. Your job, like Zerubbabel's, is simply to get to work and do it with all of your heart. So the message of Haggai is the same to the leaders as it is to the people. If you will but serve the Lord faithfully, the Lord will honor you. And it's no accident that we come to this passage at a time like this. Now, I didn't pick Haggai because it had special words to say to leaders. Um, And I didn't pick it because a spiritual landmark is happening in the lives of the people. But you'll notice if you're paying attention that a spiritual landmark is happening in the life of our church this month, isn't it? With our new constitution, our new leadership structure, the new leaders who are being put in place. I just picked Haggai because I thought it fit well with Missions Week. And then I said, well, I might as well finish it. And then I started to finish it. And I said, this goes perfectly with what's going on in our church. That's how God does things. But the point is, it's no accident by God's timing, not mine, that we come to a place in the life of Jerusalem where they're at a spiritual landmark and where there's a special need for leadership to take courage Because that's where we are with our constitution, with our leadership structure, with our leaders, all of you with new servant ministry roles in 2007, all of you with new opportunities in 2007 to share the gospel with people. And that's my big hope for this coming year is that this is the year where we can finally, uh, having worked so much on things within, begin to really focus on getting without. We're at a landmark just like they were. And what an opportune time it is for us, just like it was for them to renew our commitment to build up the house of the Lord, to build up the kingdom of King Jesus, to serve him with all of our hearts, to serve more faithfully in 2007 than we did in 2006, to perform our servant ministry roles, whatever they are, large or small, with all of our hearts. To obey Colossians 1.18, to make it our chief aim. Do you remember Colossians 1.18? It's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. So that Jesus might come to have first place in everything. This is a wonderful opportunity as a church and for you as an individual to re-up on that commitment. To say like never before, the lamb that was slain deserves the reward of his suffering. Jesus died to save me from my sin and to save me for good works. And so it's high time that I put all of my effort, all the strength that God supplies into giving him the reward that he deserves for dying for my sinful soul. So let's make that commitment as the year draws to a close and the new year draws on and all the opportunities that come with it. Let's make the commitment that from this day onward, we will seek first the kingdom of God. And let's stand back in 2007 and watch as we do that, how from this day onward, God will bless us. From this day onward, all these things will be added unto us.
Do consider, Haggai says, from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit yet. From this day on, I will bless you. Father, we pray that you would do that in our church from this day on, from this month on, when we have come to the climax of this year-long process of of working towards a more biblical form of church government, of training and preparing and praying for these men who will lead us into the future. God, everyone in this church has had a part in that through prayers and through uh, thinking and asking questions and through our voting. God, I trust that you have found this process to be faithful and that, God, as we commit even now to continue in faithfulness, even to serve with greater faithfulness in the coming year, that you would bless us, that you would assure us tonight of your promise so that we can let go of trying to take care of ourselves and dive into the process of building up the house of God. Let us pour our time, our energy, and all of our material resources into this great Goal. Let us build up treasures in heaven, store up treasures in heaven in 2007. And let us begin from this day onward to serve you with all of our hearts. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.